Well, um, this morning our text is going to be 1 John uh, chapter 2, and we're going to read 3 through 6, and as you're, you're turning there, John is writing with the, the theme of assurance of salvation. And he, throughout this book, is beginning to give things that are basically comparing and contrasting what a, what a true believer is. Um, and how a believer may know they are assured, and how they may know that they are separate from the world. And our text comes right after his uh, beautiful declaration of, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then he, he begins to to un to develop this theme of assurance all throughout the rest of the book as we will see in our text and if you were to continue to read. But now let's hear the word of the Lord, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to it. Let us now pray. Our almighty God and gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we do praise you and thank you for calling us into worship this morning, and to gather as your people to glorify you, to have fellowship with you and one another. Lord, we ask that you would continue to use all of this worship service to just bless you and honor you, but to also build and edify us in the truth. Lord, as I open your word this morning, help me to speak your words and to stay far, far from speaking mine. Lord, may you be glorified, and Christ be exalted. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Dear congregation, I, I want you to think about this doctrine of assurance. It's, it's one that's very, very important for the Christian, but it's also one that we struggle dearly with. How do we know we're saved? How can we be assured that our faith is genuine and real? Throughout centuries, this has been a topic of discussion. It's been a teaching that has been confused often mishandled, but it's one like every teaching that we hold dear that is experiential. It's one that we must experience. It can't just swim around in our heads. It has to be something that we embody, that we, we truly grab hold of and, and feel and experience. It's an experiential doctrine like all others. And sometimes it's so hard for us to experience this because of sin, the sin we have in ourselves, the sin we see in the world what we may think we know or not know. We often have deep times of, of struggle with this, wondering, do I truly know Christ? Do I belong to him? 
has his death really paid for my sins? But this doctrine is also a gift, and I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about the, the joy of receiving a gift, the joy that you experience. Kids, you might think of your birthdays, and you have all of those presents, and you're unwrapping, unwrapping them, and you're tearing them open. And just the joy that you feel for receiving things. You also might think about who you received it from. It might bring you joy and gladness to, to receive something from your parents or grandparents. Husbands and wives and, and adults, we can think of this as our birthdays, but also for husbands and wives, anniversaries, when we are able to, to give those ones, ones that we love gifts. It could be a gift from a friend. I can't think of how many letters that I have, just small little note cards and letters that were gifts to me that are such a joy to just go back and read. And I'm opening them up, and I'm, it's a gift to have their friendship. It's a gift to have their love. And that's exactly what God does. He gives us gifts, and assurance is one of those gifts. Think for a moment about the, the free and gracious gift of salvation that is given to you in the gospel. I want you to see the beauty and the glory of that joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ. That's an important gift. That's a truth that we have to give to others and to share. And upon coming to Christ, we receive redemption. We receive redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And he lavishes this, lavishes this all upon us all. It's something that he doesn't give out in, in small portions, but rather he pours it upon us. We can truly think about the, the gifts that God has given us through his promises, through Christ and by his promises. But I also want you to think, how many of you have received this gift? The gift that we, we so often talk about and speak of. How many have received the gift? Or, or rather, how many have the confidence or are fully persuaded that you have received it? Or I could ask more poignantly or just more direct, how many of you have assurance of faith? How many have assurance of faith? You may ask, how do I know that I know? Or how do I believe that I believe? Or, or know that I believe that I believe? Or how does one get assurance? The beauty of this is it's, it's not something that's kept from us. It's not something that we have to grow into. I mean, certainly we will grow into it, but it doesn't come with old age. It's something that God, that God desires to declare and to give to us. And the beauty of this, to one degree or another, we all ask these questions. None of us are alone in this. And it's in our text that, that John begins to answer the question of how. How do I know? How can I be assured? And as I said earlier, if you want to continue on to this, it's a theme that he develops throughout the rest of the book. How do I know I can be assured of my salvation? Well, this morning I, I want us to look at our theme as our abiding assurance of faith. And I want to look at it under two headings. I want to look at it first at the foundations of our assurance, and secondly, the, the fruits of our assurance. So first, the foundations of our assurance, and second, the fruits of our assurance. And as we consider these points this morning, I want us to, to show you how they, they run side by side. They connect and they run parallel with one another. They're not something that's separate from one another, but literally as we go through the text, we'll see that they are right beside each other. Because it's those who have the foundation that will manifest the fruit. 
those who have the foundation that will manifest it. So let us first consider the foundations of our assurance. If you're familiar with 1 John, you'll know that the for John's re readers, to set the context that their question of assurance came from these false teachers, these Gnostics from outside of the, the true church. And what these Gnostics were doing was they were claiming superiority over other Christians. They were claiming the superiority of knowledge and of experience. It wasn't the, the fruit of the life. It was more of an enlightenment of the, was a enlightenment of the mind. In a sense, what they were saying, I can do whatever I want in my body, but as long as I know and I have the superior knowledge up here, then I am better. And I have a far deeper experience with Christ. And what they were saying, in effect, is that you cannot be a real Christian because you have not experienced what I've experienced. And you do not know what I know. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, this isn't uncommon in our churches today. Now, there are some churches out there that will boast and complain or proclaim a superiority by receiving a second blessing, saying that I have received the second blessing from a spirit or from the spirit, and that if you haven't received that yet, you're somehow lesser of a Christian. There are churches out there that will say, unless you belong to our church and are baptized in our church, you can't be a Christian. You're still an outsider. When it comes to the doctrine of assurance, there are some that will say, unless you reach a certain age and you have exceeded in your conscience, you cannot ever be assured of your salvation. Those kind of teachings are detrimental. If we were to look at our own churches, the like-minded churches, we often claim superiority by our theological knowledge, the doctrines that we cherish and hold dear. What we begin to do is we look down upon others. We might treat others differently because they don't believe or know what we do. Or claim the superiority over our Reformed theology versus their theology. We begin to drive wedges and cause arguments and dissension. And it shouldn't be that way. But we should have patience with them. Patience to walk alongside them to, to help them see those biblical truths that we do hold dear. Now, I want to be clear in saying this. I'm not saying that John wants people to take knowledge or assurance of faith assurance of faith lightly. He does not want to do that at all. The doctrines we hold dear, the knowledge, the, the Bible, and the truths that we, we seek to explain, he's not belittling them or saying, we need to be careful how we treat others. So we can look. The false teachers in John's day were wrong. Our actions and others' teachings can be wrong. But there are also still many who claim to know Christ, who profess Christ, and assume to be believers. But the question remains, have they truly believed? Do they have a biblical, experiential knowledge of Christ? Well, John regards this as a significant question to answer here in our text. He provides... Three building blocks that I want to look at under this uh, foundations. And the first of these is knowledge, the knowledge of Christ. John wants us to see that we know Christ personally and intimately. I want you to look at verse 3 with me again. It says here, um, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This word know is very important for us because it doesn't just speak of a swimming knowledge. This isn't a knowledge that just swims around in our head. This is a, a deep, real, and experiential knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It speaks of close communion and love. One can only think of the love between a husband and a wife or the love that a mother has for a child or a father has for his child. You can also look at examples. Think of the love of, of David and Jonathan. This was a deep love. This was an intimate love. We can have this same love as David had for our friend. But this is more than just knowing something about a person. This is deeply knowing who they are. We can always say, I, I love my wife, but we need to show that we know. Or people, We can say that, but people need to see that knowledge by our love and by what we truly do know about them. This is a knowledge that we are to have for Christ. It's not merely being able to quote verses or, or to know theology. It's a knowledge that is shown by our intimate time spent with him. It's one that is not merely intellectual, but experiential. It's one that we experience daily. But how do we know Christ? And we know Christ by believing in him, by truly believing, by cleaving and grabbing hold of him each and every day. Our salvation is rooted in that saving knowledge of him. I want you to think about Christ's words in John 17, 3, where he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus is saying eternal life is knowledge, but it's not just a mere intellectual knowledge. It's a knowledge of, of cleaving and believing. And these are these two words, knowing and believing, they're, they're often synonymous in Scripture. And we can look at Paul. Paul shows us in, in 2 Timothy 1.12 as he's writing to Timothy. He says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. So for Paul, he was not ashamed because he had known whom he had believed. So he doesn't merely say that he knows about the one he believes. Instead, he knows the person in whom he believes. It's important that we catch that. He knows the person in whom he believes, not just knows about the person. And he also states that he's convinced. I am convinced. He's convinced of this person. So as we see this knowledge of Christ, it's a, it's a believing knowledge. It's a cleaving and grabbing a hold of. It's one that is, takes time and it shows it's time spent with the Lord. And it's one that convinces us of the truths and promises that God gives us in Christ. What he does here is Paul speaks in this verse to Timothy. This is partly what assurance is. It's a true knowledge. Paul knows what he knows. And as John is writing here, he wants believers to know what they know. He wants a, a deep, true, believing knowledge. And this knowledge has the idea of experiencing. To know Christ means to experience his redeeming power. To experience the saving grace that he gives us in granting us, in granting to us righteousness and the conquering of our sins. We can look at it this way. I can tell you that honey is sweet. I can tell you all day that honey is sweet, but you'll never know until you taste it. You can think about it in a lot of things. I can tell you about the best burger in the United States and how great it is, but until you went there and had that burger, 
you would never know if that truly was the greatest person. So a mere understanding and, and knowledge of this means nothing to us until we experience it, until we go and we taste. And that's what we are to do with Christ. We're to taste and to see that the Lord is good. This is an experiential moment. So it is with Christ. We need to experience him in his offices. Think about it. As Christ is prophet, he's proclaiming the word of God to us. We need to experience Christ proclaiming his Father's word and declaring it to us. The one that we most often see is in his, off, in his office of priest. We need to not only know that Christ has sacrificed our sins, but we need to experience that deep removal of our sins, our transgressions. We need to know, as Paul says, that our sins have been nailed to the cross. That Christ has removed our guilt. That's how we experience Christ as a priest. It's not just knowing that he can do those things. It's knowing that he's done it for us. It's experiencing that he's done it for us. And as king, knowing that he truly is ruling and governing everything in our lives, that he is working all things out for our salvation, our good, and his glory. It's experiencing those truths. We can experience this in his nature, knowing that Christ as the God-man, as man, he experienced the temptations and trials that we did on a far greater level. We look at the states and we think about Christ and his humiliation and what he went for, he went through for us. Knowing that in the garden of Gethsemane, when he was humiliated before God, sorrowing, he did it for us. That he's been where we have been. He's tasted the curse that we will never have to taste. And what this is for us is Christ must be considered a common treasury or storehouse of God's church. Paul testifies that Christ is that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as a as a Christian, dear believer, you need to daily go and to pull out from the storehouse to grab these treasures and to make you make them your own. You must experience these things. You can't merely just know that the storehouse exists. You must pull from it daily. Daily commune and acquaint yourselves with Christ. You need to establish a relationship that allows constant access, the freedom to converse and enjoyment of his presence. Commune with him in private. Think about this, your private worship. How sweet of a time it is to go each day and to hear from the Lord in his word, to pour out your heart to him and to receive those blessings. This is something we should be doing in our families. Each and every night, we should be looking at the Lord's word together, singing together, praying together. This kind of intimate fellowship fills a person up and also helps experience what we have in Christ. And most importantly, what we do here on the Lord's Day. We come together as, as the body of Christ. And oftentimes we come and, and we just we, we go through the motions. But how sweet it is to truly come and to have prayers prayed for us and for others with everyone present to truly come and sing God's word. To not just merely say the words on the, the page, but to experience that worship of singing the Psalms together corporately as we raise in one voice to Christ and hearing the word preached. What a joy it is to have God's word opened up and explained, to have new things given to us. 
It's all part of experiencing Christ. We need this. We need this unburdening of our souls before him. To be speaking with him in prayer and praise. And this comes through our union with Christ. That's the second of the building blocks here. If you you notice in verse 5, he says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. So we have union with Christ. John uses the phrase, in him. And I remember a few weeks back when I was here, you were going through Sinclair Ferguson's teaching in your second hour on union with Christ. So you're very familiar with this this concept and this phrase, in him. But if you look at our text that we read today, in him is used four times in these four verses. Four times in verses three through six. And this stresses the importance of being in Christ or being united to Christ. And the New Testament is full of this phrase. It's full of this phrase of, of in Christ or similar phrases in Christ Jesus or in Christ or in him. And it's our union with Christ that is the basis and great means by which God applies all salvation and blessings upon the Christian. All. And the beauty of this, this is a union that is not something we do ourselves. It's a, a union that is forged by the Holy Spirit in the hour of our regeneration. When he cuts the sinner off from Adam and grasps him or places him into, into Christ. And it's, it's Christ or it's the Spirit that, that establishes the spiritual union between Christ and the sinner. It's one that is unbreakable, it's irreversible, and it's an eternal union. But however, this, this knowledge of our union is usually a growth process. We might know that the scriptures speak of union with Christ or that we are in him. Um, It it might be something that we we know intellectually, but we don't always know experientially. It's a growth process, and it's a process that comes from a continuously abiding in Christ. I know those words seem very similar, union and abiding, but our union is what we have in Christ. Our union is something that is given to us, like I said, by the Spirit, something we do not do. But our abiding comes from a continuous seeking after and in, 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 in growth in Christ, a perseverance that is enabled by the Spirit, but is also something that we do. It's an abiding. And that's my final building block under our foundation of assurance, abiding in Christ. In verse 6, John says, Excuse me. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John states that we may be assured Christians if we abide in Christ. We abide in him. Our abiding proves that we are in union and communion with him. Brothers and sisters, we see that our claim to abide in Christ is demonstrated by walking as he walked. It's walking as Christ walked. Christ abides in us. That is his promise. We abide in him. That is our duty. So he abides in us, that union, that's his promise to us. Promise to us. But we abiding in him, that's our duty. And it's not a momentary thing that happens at the beginning of our salvation or in the past. Um, It's not a mere confession, but it's a day-by-day constant relationship with the Lord. 
It's time spent at the feet of Christ. It's abiding in his word and prayer and in love and fellowship and worship as we've already seen. This is why when Christ gives us the picture in John 15 of the vine and the branches, this is so vitally important for our Christian lives. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. And it is from this vine that the branches draw their very life. Those of you who are gardeners know this very well. If you cut a branch off from the, the, the tree, it does not get its supplements. It will die if it is not placed back in with something that will feed it. It cannot exist on its own on the ground. It must be in something. And same it is for us. It is by abiding in the vine that the branches bear fruit. Christ states that if anyone does not abide in him, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. See, we must not only know Christ or, or understand the doctrine of union with Christ, but we must continue, continually abide in him. We must abide in him. Our foundations are built from knowing him personally and intimately, not by mere study. Christianity is a life marked by the continuous progression of a life lived with Christ. The mark of a Christian is in how much he reads and how much he knows. Those, those, those things are important. I don't want to belittle them. But it's not about checking a box of reading my Bible every day or, or going through a mere season of, of just saying rote prayers. No, it's a continually abiding in Christ. It's a progression of a life lived with him. We must see that. That's what John is speaking about here. It's not a mere swimming knowledge, as I keep saying, but it is a true heartfelt experiential knowledge. The life's lived with him. It's often why we see in Scripture the, the bride in Christ being our husband. Again, with our spouses, we must do life with them. We must love them. Not just by saying we love them, but by showing them that we love them, by abiding with them. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And the sad thing is, if we do not know this, and we do not know what we know, then we do lack assurance. We do lack assurance. So we must examine ourselves to see if we have these foundations. Do we have these foundations? Are they ours? Do we have a knowledge of a Christ, knowledge of Christ? Do we have... Uh, union with him and are we abiding in that union are we abiding in him and if we do have those things we can answer those questions we can second and finally consider the fruits the fruits of our assurance I want you to remember as I said earlier these fruits are connected they run parallel with the foundations not that they're separate but, but that they're together they're intertwined just as with the foundations, these are not necessarily individual, but they're expansive. They build upon one another. And so I want us to consider again the text as a whole, just three through six. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the first of these fruits that we see here in our text is, is obedience to God's moral law. 
John here contrasts the faithful Christian from the presuming and mere professing Christian. Notice this language. He says, if anyone knows, or if anyone says he knows Christ but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar. He is the one that genuinely does not know what he claims to know. One can have a wonderful experience, profess to know Christ, make many claims, and have a wealth of knowledge and understanding and not be a Christian if he does not keep God's command. That makes him a liar. And so you see the seal obedience as it's interconnected with the foundation. So we must have a knowledge. We must have a knowledge. I don't, I don't want to take that away from the text or, or the, to speak anything that looks as if easy believism. We must have a knowledge, and we must have a knowledge of God's law and what he commands. I want to be careful here. I want to be really careful here because I need to make a distinction. A faithful Christian can be a doubting and struggling Christian. I don't want assurance to be seen as, as one who is walking through a life who is, who is doing really well by the Spirit's power to put to death sin. No, it can be someone who's struggling. It can be someone who's struggling, that daily struggles to put sin to death and live wholly righteous before God. This person's life could be marked by highs and lows, ups and downs, peaks and valleys. But there will be a constant striving and perseverance to seek out sin and put it to death. And I want to say that again because I don't want you to think that we can sin so grace can abound. But I know there are many out there who struggle, struggle deeply, daily with sin and knowing, does Christ love me? Has Christ died for me? You can still be a faithful Christian, but strive daily and persevere daily to seek out your sin, to put it to death. Plead with the Lord daily. But just as we have the doubting and struggling Christian, we also have the presuming. We have the presuming, one who says he knows God but does not keep his commandments. We've got to examine ourselves to see where we are because outwardly this man or woman can seem morally righteous. They can have a wealth of knowledge and good works or good conduct before others, but inwardly they are full of vileness and impurity. And that's why, as we, we see this text, John is setting out to, to compare and contrast. He wants to make stark contrast, to, contrast between those who are hurting his readers by their words and their actions and those who truly are the church. So a presuming Christian can be one that outwardly looks perfect. They are seemingly a very faithful Christian, but, but inwardly there's vileness, there's impurity. These are people who, who want to keep their sins precious to them or, or to be unwilling to repent or turn. They, as John later says in this book, say, live for the lust of the eyes, the lust of, yeah, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They make no conscious effort to rid themselves of sin. And so as we're thinking about this today, we need to examine. This is what Paul's calling examine. Do we keep the commandments of God? Are we making a conscious effort to rid ourselves of sin, to seek out the Lord, to help us put to death sin, to by the Spirit truly slay and mortify our sin, to grow in our love and the graces that God has for us in Christ, to, to be obedient to what God calls us to? Again, we need to examine. We need to prayerfully consider where do we fall? Which of these are we? When Christ saves a sinner, his presence in us becomes apparent in how a person obeys his commands. Your entire life changes. 
not something you can do on your own. You're no longer molded by the thinking and values of this world, but by the commandments of God, by loving God and loving your neighbor, by fulfilling both of those two in Christ. That's how you're defined, and that's what you're thinking. That's what your values. And these are all grace, all of grace. You will earnestly desire to fulfill God's commands and cling to them with reverence. You'll seek not only out, like when we come to the law of God, and I love this that our confession or our, our catechisms do this. When we come to the law of God, when you come to the law of God, you will no longer just seek out what God forbids. You'll no longer do that. It'll also be what is promoted in it. What's meant for my joy, for my progression, and my happiness? It's not what I can't what I can't do, but what can I do? It's meant for your good and for your enjoyment. It's also vital for us to note that outside of Christ, no one can keep the law perfectly. And I was once ter- told this, and, and I've loved it ever since I've ever heard it, and I don't remember where I got it, but we cannot keep the law perfectly. Outside of Christ, no one can. But since we cannot keep it perfectly, we can keep it purposefully. I'll say that again. We cannot keep the law perfectly, but we can keep it purposefully. Only Christ we stand, in, it's in him we stand. It's only Christ that fulfilled the law. But we must endeavor in our knowledge, along with our obedience, to purposely seek to obey God's law. So we must know the law. We must know what it means to love God and love our And we can rise up each day endeavoring with a longing in our hearts to keep his word. And we can do that in accordance with his will. And that brings me to the second of these fruits. And these are, like I said, all interconnected. They may seem like the same thing. Obedience, now keeping God's word. That's the second one. So we had obedience, now the second fruit is keeping God's word. How are they different? John says in verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the truly, in him truly the love of God is perfected. John takes obedience to God's commands one step further by speaking about adherence to God's word. To keep God's word means one who adheres to or holds my doctrine and teaching. So I want you to think for a minute of the parable of the sowers. Jesus speaks of a sower who has cast different types of seed onto the ground. And the last soil that he spoke of was good soil. So he goes through all of these soils, and then he speaks of the good soil. And so when, he, when he's explaining this parable, the soil, the good soil is represented as those who had heard the word, kept it, and brought forth fruit with patience. So likewise, John says that the Christian who is assured of his salvation receives the word, holds to it, and strives to live according to it. Right? He hears the word, he holds to it, and he strives to live according to that word. So we can contrast this to those who twist the word. Right? Those who would use God's word for their own gain or own benefit. This would be those who turn from the word to unbiblical teaching and corrupt practices. One who keeps God's words endeavors to keep his commandments. But not only the commandments and obedience to them, he, he endeavors to keep the promises, to proclaim the gospel, to endure hardships, trials, tests, and ridicule. This is a foundational mark of grace by which we must examine ourselves. See, we can be obedient to the commandments, but we can also not keep God's word by, by refusing to go out and do what our duty is in Christ. Remember, the king says, whoever is ashamed of me 
to the world, I will I will be ashamed of him. So right, we need to, to not only just be obedient in our personal lives, but also publicly. We need to hear and keep God's word as it calls us. And this is a foundational mark of grace by which we must examine ourselves. It's one who keeps God's word. It's one who adheres to God's word. It's one who clings to it and strives to know and keep it better. Do we search and love the scriptures? Again, I will say it's not a mere checking off the box of reading my Bible in a year. Do you seek? Do you know the scriptures? Do you endeavor to see Christ in the scriptures, the beauty and the glory and majesty of the Son? Are you overwhelmed by the love of God and by God's grace? Because the one who can answer yes to these questions has God's love perfected in them. And I want to be clear here because what John means is perfected is to complete or to accomplish. So what John is saying is in this person, God's love, God's love accomplishes its purpose. Because we see in the text that keeping leads to the love being perfected in the excuse me. God's love being completed and being fulfilled to, to accomplish. And what it's doing is God's love is accomplishing, accomplishing it. Can't even talk today. Accomplishing its purpose. And then third and finally, I want us to consider this last fruit of assurance, which is walking as Christ. The end of verse 6, six says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, we need to walk as Christ walked. We see we have the word abiding. We need to walk in this walk. As Christ, a Christian is united to Christ when he partakes from Christ's blessing and benefits. So let's look back at the picture of the vine and the branches. A branch is grafted into a tree slowly. Um, it becomes part of that vine. right? So if you, again, have ever put a plant into another plant or, or, or done this process, it slowly takes time for that, that branch to go into the vine. You can cut it off and actually graft it back in, but it takes time for that to actually become part of the vine or the tree. So it's a slow process. And this slowly, as this branch becomes part of the vine, the vine's life flows into the branch. Right? That is why, again, Christ says in John 15:5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much. So if the branch is truly united to the vine, it possesses the same life as the vine has. And it brings forth the same fruit. And this is exactly what John is intending to say here when he says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, this is evident. If we truly belong to Christ, if we are truly have that union with him, and if we are abiding in him, it will be evident in how our life conforms to his. If we are in Christ, we will be like Christ and walk as he walked. And then walking, it implies action, direction, and purpose. We will begin to make Christ focus our focus. Think about it. Christ's focus was a kingdom focus. When Christ walked, he walked to, to obey his Father, to do his Father's will. He walked knowing that he was coming for the salvation of sinners. And what we do is we proclaim that salvation to sinners. In John 6, 38, Christ states that I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So again, do we have a kingdom focus? Do you have a kingdom focus? 
Do you consider daily how you may advance this thing? This is something that is constantly on your mind. We also see that Christ delighted in the law of God. Do you delight in the law of God? Christ loved his Father's law and he kept it. That's why when we read of Christ in, in Psalm 48, he says, I delight to do your will, O God, your law is within my heart. So as we sing that, when we sing it, we see that we're singing in Christ, that Christ's delight was to do his Father's will. That, that Christ's delight was his Father's law and it was within his heart. So something that we often look at with, with dread is the law of God, but is the law of God your delight? Can you say with David, can you say more importantly with Christ, that the law of God is your delight, that you meditate on it day and night? You also ask yourselves, do you love what God loves or hate what he hates? You can also look at it in compassion. Christ had compassion for others. How are we doing in this area? How are you doing? We see Christ had a servant's heart throughout all of the Gospels. He's caring for the needs of others. And as such, our lives are intended for that very purpose, especially as the church corporately. We care for the needs of others. Are we looking out for others? Our lives are intended to live for them and not ourselves. To live for Christ, most importantly, within the love of our neighbor. The primary place that we can examine this is, is look at your families and your workplaces. I want you to think about this. Do you view others' time as a, others' needs um, and others just others in general? Do you view them as a pull on your time, as an inconvenience, maybe a disruption? Or as people who are, are, are in need of love, compassion, caring, and an encouraging word. See, we, could, we can take and spend hours examining Christ, hours examining his life and how he walked. We can, we can make that a series for the next few months. But we need to consider this in our own lives. Are we examining our lives in light of the life of Christ? Are we examining, looking at our, our conforming unto him as we are called to be conformed unto him? Are we looking at our lives? Are we looking at the time we spend in our, our, our daily lives? Are we reflecting Christ? Are we truly bearing the name of Christ? Are we truly being this light and city upon a hill? And my prayer is that it's a part of our, your daily worship, my daily worship, all of our daily worship, that we consider Christ. We consider how he walked, that we may walk in accordance and really be who we're called to be as Christians. The last thing I want to say on this is I know that when we look at Christ, we can shrink in comparison to him. We're all too acquainted with our own sins. We're all too acquainted with shortcomings in our life to ever make such a claim that we walk as he walked, truly walk as he walked. But yet, is there within you a small beginning of that obedience of Christ's likeness? Is there a small beginning? Or is there, because you've been walking with Christ for a long time, a great sense of that obedience of Christ's likeness? Is there a bend of your life towards Christ? Because this is God's great predestinating purpose. It's to conform you to his likeness. You are called not just for the salvation of your sins, but to be conformed to his image to have a life lived with him in union with him 
to experience him, but also to be conformed to him, to look like him to the world, to be a light and to be a, a vessel to proclaim his goodness and his, great, his greatness and his majesty and his salvation. It's Christ who is molding into us that which is pleasing into his sight. The obedience to his commandments, the adherence to his word, and the walking as he walked. God is doing that in us. He wants us to be obedient. He wants us to adhere to his word. And he wants us to walk as he walked. Brothers and sisters, in all of these considerations, I, I hope you find encouragement that God intends that you should have an abiding assurance of your faith. God doesn't want you left in the dark. He doesn't want you wondering. He doesn't want each day of your life to be a struggle, wondering if he truly loves you or if he truly knows you. And the beauty of this is we're given First John as something we can go to and seek. What is God's word? How can I know that I truly belong to him? Just as we've seen this morning, we see the foundations and we see these fruits. We see this knowledge of Christ, of who he is. We see our union with Christ. And then we, we see these beautiful fruits that come from this knowledge and this union. John wants us to know, but more importantly, the Holy Spirit through John, God wants us to know that we have the love of Christ dwelling in us and that we can be assured that what he has done for us, what he has promised us can be ours individually. He doesn't want you to go through life doubting or wondering, do I know him? Does he truly know me? He gives you this assurance by his spirit through his word and according to his promise. John states near the end of this epistle, I, I want to begin to conclude with this. In, in the end of his epistle in chapter 5, John says this, in John 5, or 1 John 5, 11 through 13, he says, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. John here, as I said, the Holy Spirit here, they want, you, they want his readers to know. He wants his readers to know. The Spirit wants you to know that you have eternal life by believing in Christ. In the beginning of this, I asked you to consider the joy of receiving a gift. But I do want you to now consider that giver. Consider the giver. Because we need to see God in this. When we think about our assurance and what is promised to us and given to us, we need to see the Lord. That, that joy that he has, not only in giving his son to you, not only in giving you Christ for your salvation, but also the gift of you being fully persuaded and confident that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. That brings God joy. When we, we look at all of the texts, the, the, the foundations that we have, the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done, but that true believing knowledge, that, that clinging to knowledge, knowing that through the Spirit we have been placed into Christ, Christ is is now in us and we in him. And that abiding, that abiding in Christ, those things bring the Lord joy that we have knowledge of those, but a true experiential knowledge of them. That's why he writes this to us. He wants us to know. He wants us to know, but he also wants us to know that he finds joy in this. 
God isn't begrudgingly giving you these gifts. No, he's lavishing them upon you, as I said earlier. He's pouring them out. I want you to think of a river that is just rushing in the springtime, full of that snow melt. That is the lavishing grace of God upon you when it comes to these promises. It's a joy to him. He's not merely giving this to you, but he's, he's pouring it out on you. And he's joyful. And he finds joy in the fruits that you bear and the obedience to his commandments and the keeping of his word and delighting in his promises. And he finds so much joy when you are conformed unto the image of the Son and that you are walking as he walked. So consider the giver. We find joy often in the gift. And I said that earlier. We find joy in opening in the item or the words that we receive, but how much more is the one that it's from? How precious is the giver to us? And that's what we have here. We have one that gives us such a great doctrine that we so often struggle with, that so often we wonder and we, we struggle through life having this deep sense of, do I truly know the Lord or does he love me or, or has his sins or has, has my sins been placed upon his cross? Has his death and his blood truly been for me? All along, we're missing out on God delights. He finds joy in lavishing this upon us, giving this to us. And we must remember him. If we focus on ourselves, we're just the gifts we'll miss out truly on the benefits that come from the only true giver of life. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we... We do thank you that we can come to your word in times of need. We can come to you with all of our struggles. And as we come to a text that so much for all Christians, but as we see for doubting Christians, how you have given us a book in your word that declares to us how, that, how we may truly be assured of our salvation, how we may know that we know you the true marks of what it means to be a Christian. The Lord, help us. Help all of us. I want to especially pray for those who may struggle with this doctrine of assurance. Lord, help them to see the beauty of Christ. Fix their gaze upon him. It is not anything that we do, Lord, it is all through him, the wondrous promises that we have in knowing Christ truly and in, in having union with him being placed inside of him, Lord, and, and, and abiding in him. Lord, so fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never lose sight of him. May we never examine ourselves and look to our own works, but only the work of your son. Lord, may we pray daily for the grace, the help from your spirit and your word to walk and to bear the fruits, to be obedient and to keep your word to adhere to it, Lord. This is not something we do in and of ourselves, but something that is granted to us through you. Lord, but again, we are so thankful for Christ Jesus. We're so thankful for the promises that we have in you giving your son, but also giving us more than just a mere salvation for our sins, which is so important, but you have given us a life in communion with you and your son. We have been saved to something far greater than just being free from guilt, but to dwelling with you for eternity and worshiping you, Lord. Help us to see that beauty and to proclaim that glory and majesty to the world. 
Lord, we thank you and we praise you all in the matchless and precious name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.